Welcome to this edition of the JNNP podcast. My name is Colin Mahoney and I'm the JNNP podcast editor. Today we're discussing multifocal motor neuropathy, controversies and priorities, which features in the February edition of the JNNP. Joining me to discuss this topic is the senior author of the paper, Professor Bruce Taylor. Professor Taylor is a neurologist at the Royal Hobart Hospital and a professorial research fellow at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research, which is at the University of Tasmania. So a very warm welcome to you, uh, Professor Taylor, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. So look, multifocal motor neuropathy is a condition that most neurologists will be familiar with, uh, and it's great that you're here to provide us some, some updates in this area. But how common is uh, multifocal motor neuropathy? And indeed, what are the clinical features that help us uh, in making a diagnosis? Well, multifocal motor neuropathy is a rare neuropathy. Um, at one stage, uh, it was quoted that there were more papers written on multifocal motor neuropathy than actual patients with the condition. It's, been, it's a very interesting condition, but most neuromuscular physicians will have a number of cases of this because it's a chronic neuropathy. People don't tend to die from it or very, very rarely die from it. So people have a long chronic um, disease course. So even though the incidence is low, the prevalence is not as low. For instance, we estimate the prevalence in um, southern Australia to be approximately one in every um, twenty to 50,000 people. So it's, it's not a common neuropathy, but because of the longevity of the, the illness, it's um, you, most people who specialise in this area will um, have a, a, a modest or a moderate cohort of it. The principal features which make you think that someone has got multifocal motor neuropathy, that it's a pure motor, lower motor neuron syndrome, which tends to affect peripheral nerve in isolation. For instance, people may have involvement of the median nerve, but a normal function in the ulnar nerve. And often um, painless wasting of a uh, mix of the muscle supplied by a mixed peripheral nerve, such as the ulnar, median, radial, perineal, or tibial, is a clue that they potentially has multifocal motor neuropathy. And that, because its major differentialism is obviously lower motor neuron forms of motor neuron disease or even motor neuron disease itself, which does not tend to be as focal as this condition. So the clear clues that you're, um, you may be looking at multifocal motor neuropathy are painless weakness and or wasting of muscles innervated by a mixed peripheral nerve with normal uh, muscles um, supplied by the, the neighbouring nerve, for instance, use the example of the median and the ulnar nerve or the radial nerve in the, in the upper limb. So it's a, it's, it, when it's classical phenotype, it is quite easy to clinically diagnose. But like with everything in medicine, there are people who have uh, more proximal blocks, people who have blocks in unusual nerves or unusual areas, and they'd also people who um, have more than one thing, for instance, they might have carpal tunnel syndrome and uh, multifocal motor neuropathy. So sometimes it can be difficult. The clue that you don't have, that it isn't multifocal motor neuropathy, are the presence of upper motor neuron signs or the presence of sensory um, symptoms or signs. So very, very helpful. And I know that neurophysiology has, has long been used to help in the diagnosis of uh, multifocal motor neuropathy, yet, as your paper alludes to, there still are some controversies around its use. Uh, what do you think are the most helpful um, neurophysiology findings in uh, clinching a diagnosis? Well, the classical, the most important thing is that um, conduction block within motor nerves, motor nerve fibres in a mixed nerve where there is normal sensory conduction through the same segment is really the uh, neurophysiological hallmark of the condition. And that should not be at the sites of common conduction blocks, such as the wrist or the elbow. 
and it should not be in a nerve where the distal CMAP amplitude is less than a millivolt because that reduces your sensitivity. But classically, that is you know, like with a lot of things, if you get a classical conduction block in the median nerve of the forearm and say in the perineal nerve in the lower leg, um, you can make your diagnosis very easily. And that's the, that's the hallmark of the condition. It can be much more difficult if, for instance, block is far more proximal in the brachial plexus, for instance, or in the nerve roots. It's much harder neurophysiologically to, to isolate that. And the controversy is resolved around several things. One is, one is uh, firstly, how much conduction block you need um, to make a diagnosis, and that varies on the nerve that's being studied. For instance, in the tibial nerve, it, it, the, the amount of conduction block required to be definite is much higher than, for instance, in the forearm segment of the median nerve or the ulnar nerve. And so good neurophysiologists or people who are aware of this actually um, know where the sensitivity is the greatest and where the specificity is the greatest. And um, the other thing that is controversial is the presence of temporal dispersion. Because temporal dispersion is suggestive of a demyelinating process when nerve fibres are conducting at different velocities and therefore conduction block could occur simply by phase cancellation. Therefore, multifocal motor neuropathy, we like to see less than 10, um, 10% uh, temporal dispersion because that is um, you know, that makes it far, far more likely that it's, it's a real focal motor conduction block rather than just a spurious conduction block brought on by temporal dispersion. Your paper also touches on um, a number of other emerging techniques that might be helpful going forward. Um, can you just touch on, on what those emerging techniques are? Well, um, the, the um, two techniques which we discuss are MRI and high-resolution ultrasound. Now, they are useful, um, as I mentioned before, the principal differential diagnosis in multifocal motor neuropathy is in fact motor, motor neuronopathies or motor neuron disease. And in those conditions, you tend to lose volume of nerves. Whereas in multifocal motor neuropathy, you may actually get an increase in the volume of the nerve. You might get some, a degree of hypertrophy at times. And you can detect those by using high resolution ultrasound, particularly of the brachial plexus or of the forearm nerves. And whereas in, whereas in ALS or, and other types of motor neuron disease, you tend to get a reduction in the cross-sectional area of those nerves. And that can be seen on both MRI and also on ultrasound. So both those techniques are very useful in the distinguishing between motor neuron disease and ALS, where they're less useful is distinguishing between focal types of um, CIDP, because again, you can get enlargement of nerve, fibre, uh, nerve roots, nerve trunks and, and peripheral nerves with CIDP. And therefore, in being able to make that distinction between CIDP and MMN is more difficult with these techniques, but it is a very useful technique to be able to distinguish between motor neuron disease and multifocal motor neuropathy. Yeah, and I think it's a condition that you know many neurologists are, are cautious about diagnosing um, because sometimes it can be tricky distinguishing those two disorders. I think it's fair to say there's been uh, you know a lot of advances in our understanding of the of the pathophysiology of of this condition, though most of us still consider it you know as a as an immune mediated condition. Um, and again, you give an excellent update of some of the, the pathophysiological insights. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about about what we understand, what's behind this illness. Well, that's a very good point. You know, again, the the research is, you know, hasn't come down to a definite conclusion on this. But when our the, the group of authors who produced this paper are of the um, opinion that this is a nodo or paranodopathy where the immune attack is against elements of the node of Ronvier. And that results in functional disablement or functional dysfunction of the nerve fibre as it tries to transmit through the node of Ronvier, producing the conduction block. 
Now, in the pathological studies that we in particular have done, we've not been able to find any evidence of demyelination. Although in previous studies, this had certainly been um, described in, uh, in a couple of case reports. And for a long time, it's been thought that um, focal demyelination is the underlying mechanism of this condition. But our pathological studies would indicate that it's probably not the case. It may be that there is local disruption of myelin at the node of Ronvier, which exposes antigens, which allow for the immune attack to occur at the node of Ronvier. But the, we think the principal pathophysiological measure, uh, mechanism of this condition is a, a, node, uh, a paranodal dysfunction with functional conduction block, at least initially, and then uh, with secondary axonal degeneration, leading to the well-documented uh, atrophy and irreversible changes that can occur with, as the disease progresses. Now that is also supported strongly by nerve excitability studies which indicate that there is significant dysfunction of the sodium and potassium channels at the node of Ronvier and also by some of the immune studies which would indicate that you can actually get functional block with, uh, without demyelination by the application of serum from people with multifocal motor neuropathy. So we think it is a paranoidal or nodal nodopathy and we don't think that primary demyelination is the underlying cause and, and this distinguishes strongly from CIDP and, and again we do think there are types of CIDP which difficult clinically and electrophysiologically to distinguish between and um, MMN but that we can distinguish between those pathologically. So I mean many neurologists practicing will, will still think uh, of ordering gangliocyte antibodies in this disorder and you, you do mention GM1 in this condition, but you also mentioned a number of other emerging antibodies that, that may become more readily available. Could I, could I get you just to uh, discuss the, the, the antibodies that we should be looking for? Well, I think that at this stage, the only antibody that should be measured is in fact um, anti-GM1. The other antibodies are have not been validated. They're not, the, the results of the studies have been inconclusive. But the reason why people have looked for those in, uh, antibodies like gliomedin and neurofacin is because of their uh, localization within the promoted nerves at the node of Rombier. But in, unfortunately, none of them has particularly been shown to be useful in clinical practice. So high dose, high teeter GM1 IgM GM1 is very suggestive, is very supportive in the right clinical context of a diagnosis of multifocal motor neuropathy. But in that context, that's the only useful clinical antibody that we have at the moment. The other ones, you know, well, there have been a number that have been suggested, but none of them has been held up in large, in you know, serial studies or larger studies. And look, I suppose one of the key priorities is to, is to develop better treatments for this condition. And I think the last part of your paper spends some time talking about this, this area and indeed some of the controversies around particular treatments, particularly with the emergence of monoclonal antibodies. Can you tell us you know, maybe your approach and indeed the evidence base for treating this condition? Well, the evidence base is because it's, a, as I mentioned originally, it's a rare neuropathy. It's not, you know, most people don't have a large cohort of people that they can study. But the, the, the treatment that has been shown to be effective in this condition is, is IVIG. There's no doubt that IVIG is an efficacious treatment. It's best given early on in the course and it's best given at a dosage which maintains function and, and maintains any uh, gains. Often, unfortunately, despite aggressive treatment with IVIG, people will still continue to lose function over time. And as a consequence, there's been trials of thing, rescue therapies in particular, and the one that's been used the most extensively is cyclophosphamide. 
Um, and that, as we all know, has got a significant risk profile, particularly in a chronic disease where you may need to continue treating long term. And the actual studies have shown that cyclophosphamide works relatively small and relatively limited. And, and, and really, it should only be used as a, a um, treatment of last resort. More recently, there's been significant interest, interest in the complement autoantibodies such as echilizumab, which is a humanised monoclonal antibody against the complement component C5. And at least in um, one small open label trial, it was found to be effective, but this is a really quite a horrendously expensive drug. And really, until there's better um, evidence that it is actually better than um, IVIG, it should only really be used in um, clinical trials. Similarly, there's been other, a number of other treatment trials, including with things such as beta interferon and rituximab, which have not really shown any significant improvement. So, but, but all of these treatments I'm mentioning uh, apart from IVIG, uh, have only been studied in handfuls of patients. And therefore, it becomes a, a really difficult question as to what to do when you're confronted with someone who's losing function and losing independence. What should you do? Now, if I had the you know, an open blank checkbook, I would give them a trial of eculizumab because that seems to be the most promising and potentially has the most effect. But in the real world, um, IVIG is the treatment of choice and IVIG is often required long-term it's often required at reasonably high dosages, which means it's an expensive treatment. But when it's used and used it, um, you know, judiciously, it, it is an effective treatment. It does prolong people's independence. It does prolong the uh, hand function. And um, in this situation, I use it really quite frequently. Well, I think that's a, an excellent overview of, of this area and uh, really a, a comprehensive and state-of-the-art review of uh, current processes. So I want to thank uh, Professor Bruce Taylor for joining me on today's podcast and remind all of our listeners that the review in full is now available uh, for free to download at the uh, JNNP website now. Thank you and goodbye.